I think this morning, just a good reminder of how this entire service, not just a sermon, is part of ministry. Amen. I mean, the fellowship, the, the whole thing, the ministry through the prayer and everything, it's just such a blessing, such a blessing to experience and feel God's presence in this place and in our hearts. As we sing that song, our God reigns from heaven above, but does He reign in your hearts? That's where He wants to reign, is in our hearts. Will you allow Him to, do you allow Him to reign in your hearts? I pray that we all do, that He reigns. If you see this, this morning's title there, let yourselves be cheated. And make sure you notice there's a question mark at the end of there. Will we let ourselves be cheated? Do we let ourselves be cheated? Think about that. You don't have to answer. Don't raise your hands or anything. <laughs> Let yourselves be cheated. You know, as we, we think about God's Word and we study it, you know, we have the Gospels that share Jesus' ministry and His life on earth and all the experiences and all the wonderful things He did. And then we get to the letters. You know, the letters, whether they be from Paul or from Peter, from James or Luke, we get all these letters. But what are the, what are the purpose of these letters? To guide the churches. The church is made up of people just like us, right? Yes. That's right. The it's made up of people that has issues, yes. has problems in their lives. They come together. Yes, they, they believe in Christ, but they come into the church and they still have issues that they're working through in their lives. It's that process of salvation. We're not... I mean, yes, some are, man, they're instantly go from bad guy to, oh, they're, they're, they're great. But others, it's a process. And you've got to work through it. And that's what these letters is we're seeing as we're into chapter 6. I know we'll get there eventually. In the chapter 6, we're seeing that Paul's trying to help guide and direct this church in the things that they need to do, the, the way they need to walk to represent Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what we have this for. That's why we have these letters to help teach us how we should live, what we should do, and, and, and what we should get rid of in our lives. That's what these are all about. Let yourselves be cheated. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It's really strange the way he begins this. Dare. You ever remember when you was a kid? I dare you to jump off of that. Oh no, it's too high. When I was young, I had a fear of heights. And I you know, grew up on the farm from the time I was eight. And I had cousins. One was older and one was a little bit younger. Well, we had these silos on the farm. Two of them were 70 feet tall. And I tell you, when you're standing there looking up, and you're a kid, and I wasn't very tall when I was a kid, 70 feet looked like 150. You know, it's tall. A couple of them, one was only 60 feet, but they're tall. Well, my cousin's just like, boom, boom, right up the ladder, clean to the top. And they'd say, come on, I dare you to climb up. I'd start up and I'd get to shaking and back down I'd go. You know, for a year, a couple years, finally, they kept daring me, you know, and I finally got brave enough. When I climbed to the top of that solid for the first time, I felt like I was on top of the world. <laughs> it was wonderful. I dare you. Paul says, dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know 
that the saints will judge the world. Brothers and sisters, let that sink in for a minute. Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, and we can say to the church today, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that? Nod your head if you knew that. Okay. The saints will judge the world. And if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Why do you not let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong, you cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So what did I say about the church in the beginning? They're made up of people just like us. They were sinners. They were all sorts of people. On such were, past tense, some of you. You are no longer like that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Amen. May God add His blessings to the hearing and reading of His wonderful Word. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You and praise You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit that is present in this place. We thank You for Your Spirit that dwells in our hearts. And Father, may Your Word be proclaimed today. May Your truth be exclaimed, Father. And Lord, that You would receive the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I already said in the beginning, people are people. You know, we can relate to the, even the early Christian church. We can relate to them maybe a little easier than the Old Testament uh, ancient people, but all of the New Testament people, we can relate to that. They had issues the same as we have issues in our society today, right? These people... Struggled with covetousness, right? Sure. Now, what, they co- what did they covet? Well, they coveted the same things people covet today. They coveted their neighbor's wives. They coveted their neighbor's property. They coveted their neighbor's car. No, wait, their neighbor's horse. You know, we'll covet our neighbor's car. They coveted, you know, they had houses too. We have houses. Their houses may have looked different than ours, but they coveted their neighbor's house. Their things that they had maybe looked a lot different than what we have today, but they still had the same issues. They struggled with adultery. They struggled with idolatry. They had idols that they would struggle with. My friends, we have idols today that we struggle with. Just as I said, they may look a little different. For some, their idol is that shiny car sitting in the garage. For some, their idol is that home. For some, their idol is work. 
It's what takes precedence over God. That's what we need to look at and what we need to fix if we're struggling with that. So the cultures may be different, but friends, people are the same. Right? People are the same. So Paul's again continuing to deal with matters in the church, matters of division, immorality, pride, disputes. He's not talking about a dispute with someone outside the church. This is inside the church, among believers, among brethren. They're having disputes. And all of this is a result of immaturity. Let's go back to the first chapter. He says, I have to feed you with milk because you haven't grown enough yet. That here you are, now you're taking brother to court because of this dispute that you have. You know, it's a fact of life that individuals are going to have differences of opinion. They're going to have disputes. Fact of life, right? We're not all always going to agree, right? So at times we'll need someone to help settle matters. Paul's not so naive to think that you're never going to have disputes. Remember Moses? when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt? And they're out wandering in the desert. You know, you remember the story. Seventy went in. Over a million came out. But listen, they're all family because they were all from one family, right? So here they are. They're out in the desert wandering around. And they've got disputes among themselves because Moses sat from morning till evening trying to fix their problems until Jethro, his father-in-law, came along and said, wait a minute, Moses. This is way too much. You can't do this. You're going to wear yourself down. You need to appoint judges to help settle these things. Let them handle all the little stuff and bring only the big stuff to you. My friends, what did they have disputes about? Out there wandering around in the desert. Again, they're people. They have differences, right? So they too had disputes. Paul says, I know you're going to have disputes. But what his problem is, they went to the unbelievers to help settle their disputes. That's what disturbed him the most. He says, I dare any of you go to the law before the unrighteous. That's the whole problem that he has here. They are going to the heathens, if you will, to help settle disputes among the people in the church. Instead of going to believers. Because think about this. Here's the problem. If you're having marital problems and you go to a heathen counselor, I'm sorry, that's a harsh word, an unbelieving counselor, and you both sit down there and you share the problems that you're having in your marriage, well, that unbelieving counselor might say, man, you've got a lot of things, problems. Just go ahead and get divorced because you ain't going to reconcile this thing. Right? But if you go to a believing counselor, they're going to say, God is powerful. God is able to heal this marriage. Let's pray together. Let's work this out. Let's do what we need to do to save this marriage. There's a whole different set of values that drives people. So if you go to an unbelieving counselor, you're not going to get the same help, counsel that you need as you would with a believing counselor. Paul said in verse 5, he said, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. You know, I know that unbelieving lawyers and counselors 
You know, they're smart. They know that they have to know the law. They have to spend many years in, in college or school, whatever. There are so many things, and I'm sure that there's a lot of well-qualified lawyers or counselors out there in the world today. But again, as I said, they're going to use man's system to help guide and direct and counsel and settle matters. The believing counselor is going to use God's ways Amen. to help settle matters, right? You know, today's worldly values go like this. Life is about what I can get. It's about what I can achieve. It's about who I can impress. What I can possess. It's about where I live. It's about what I drive. It's about how much education I have. How much money I make. It's about who knows my name and how successful I am. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But by contrast, true believers, it's about what I can give. It's about who I can encourage. Who I can help. It's about who, not who knows me, but it's about how many can know Him through my witness of Him. Right? Amen. It's about how I can bless others. And it's about not my knowledge, but all knowledge and wisdom comes from Him. And knowing that, <clears throat> Since I was, we're talking kind of about lawyers, I found this lawyer joke. And since I get to choose what to share, I'm going to share this. There was a lawyer. He went to a doctor one day and the doctor shared some bad news with him. He says, I hate to share this with you and tell you, but you have a brain tumor. And he says, I'm sad to say that this brain tumor is inoperable. He says, there's no way we can get in there and do that. He said, but he goes, but I can still help. He said, we can do a brain transplant. You didn't know they could do that, did you? It's my story. We, I'm going to do a, we can do a brain transplant with you. He says, I know that we can bring you healing. He says, now come back into this room with me. He takes him back there and he shows him this jar. He says, now here in this jar, he said, here are the brains of an architectural engineer. He goes, you can have this brain for only $10 an ounce. He goes, now, if you don't like to be, wouldn't like to be an engineer, he says, come on over here. He said, here's the brains for a rocket scientist. They're only $15 an ounce. He goes, well, I don't think I want to be a rocket scientist. I, I'm not, I don't think so. He goes, well, all right, come on over here. He said, in this jar, he said, there's brains of a lawyer. He said, they are $800 an ounce. And the guy says, what? Wait a minute. How in the world could the others be $10 and $15? How in the world could the brains for a lawyer be $800 an ounce? He goes, that's just robbery. He says, I'm, I'm, that's no, there's no way. And the doctor says, no, wait a minute, listen. He goes, do you know how many lawyers it takes to get an ounce of brains? <laughs> All right, so we got the laugh today. <laughs> Isn't that a good one? I'm sorry. If there's any lawyers listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, we make fun of people. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of wonderful lawyers out there. But, you know, we can laugh. And they'll laugh at me, right? But we can laugh. It's good to laugh. It's good for the soul. Amen? Amen. On the issue of lawyers, since I'm talking about these things and settling disputes, probably would come to no surprise of you, to you that there are 16 million lawsuits filed in the United States every single year. Many of these, of course, are frivolous lawsuits, but 
The fact remains that every one of them must be heard, right? It must be settled. That works out, I think that my math worked out, to 43,835,000 lawsuits a day. Isn't that phenomenal? A day in the United States. Most of you in the past have probably heard this. Anybody remember the infamous lawsuit against McDonald's? There we go. Right, the hot coffee, right? Everyone has probably had heard that. And for some reason in my mind as I thought about this lawsuit, I was thinking it happened much earlier than it did. I was thinking it happened like in the 80s. And a lot of people, and I'm going to confess that I jumped on that bandwagon that thought this is the lawsuit that caused frivolous lawsuit frenzy. But I really don't think it was. Because this lawsuit didn't happen until 1992. And as a railroader, I know that the lawsuit frenzy began long before that. Because I can remember back in the mid-80s, or early to mid-80s to the, to into the 90s, well, of course, I should just say continuously, <laughs> that the lawsuit frenzy had begun. Because the rail, there were so many railroaders back in the middle 80s that they called it the railroad lottery. Seriously, they called it the railroad lottery. And it started with hearing. Oh, man, I've got hearing loss. We're going to sue the railroad. So one begins, then another jumps on that, on, on that bandwagon. That's my word for today. And another one jumps on there. So it was almost like the railroad allotted this much big sum of money to settle all these hearing disputes. So they just, a whole bunch, I'm talking system-wide, I don't mean just local, jumped on that and started suing the railroad for the hearing. So they would get their settlements. When that money was going, boom, they were done. No more. Then it was carpal tunnel. You know, they were getting $15 a hand, or maybe 15000 I mean. Did I say $15? 15000 or so per hand. So they'd go get them both done so they'd get more. Friends, this was all about money. So all it was about was that big payday. I remember a gentleman, we'll name names, that he had probably had... 10 to 15 lawsuits against the company himself. And one time he claimed an a injured wrist. So he goes you know, to the doctor and he wears, he didn't even miss work, but he's wearing this brace. And the day he went to see the claim agent, he come right back from there, took that off, threw it in the garbage and said that was good for $1,500. So frivolous lawsuits happened before this. So I will admit that thinking about the, the McDonald's lawsuit, I didn't have all the facts. You know, we should not say something unless we have all the facts. I did not have all the facts on that case. This lawsuit was filed in 1992 by a 79-year-old woman. Her and her grandson had went to McDonald's. He was driving. She was in the passenger seat. So they placed her order to drive up window and he gives the coffee to his grandmother. And it had the name on this, all this information. But she spilt the coffee on her lap. Now, I think it said that she set it down there, but then it spilt on her lap. What most do not know, and I did not know till I did some research, there had been over 700 complaints about the temperature of the coffee prior to this, to McDonald's. They refused to turn the temperature of the coffee down, which was ordered to be set at 180 to 190 degrees temperature. That's what they demanded that the coffee machines be set at. 
that is at least 30 degrees hotter than most people's coffee machines that you would have in your house. Very hot. So I can envision that's so hot, it, you're going to let go of it. Well, it burned her lap. She had third degree burns on her legs. Most don't know that she spent a week in the hospital. Her hospital bills accumulated to $10,000. Of course, today that would probably $10,000 a day. But $10,000 in a week. And what we also didn't know, all her first request was, she wrote a letter to McDonald's, would you please pay for my hospital bills? $10,000. McDonald's said, nope, we ain't going to do it. They offered her $800. They offered her 800 bucks. So she wrote another letter. Two more times she requested that they pay her medical expenses. And again, they refused. And the second time, the third time, they refused. They would have been smart to settle her original request. Because it went to court. And it's not what she was asking. All she wanted was her medical bills paid and the temperature of the coffee turned down so no one else would spend a week in the hospital with third-degree burns. They wound up selling for $160,000 in medical expenses and $640,000 in punitive damages. McDonald's would have been smart to pay her medical bills, wouldn't they? But what I'm getting at is my wrongful attitude over the years thinking, yeah, that's just crazy. You spill coffee in your lap. I didn't know her suffering. And I didn't realize that that's all she wanted in the beginning. Medical bills paid. So let's don't be quick to judge. That's kind of really off of my theme here today. Do you ever wonder why these first century Christians or what they had to sue one another over? We're not told the content of the lawsuits, but some scholars and commentators believe that they were perceived insults against one member or one party in the church. If you remember from earlier in the earlier chapters, Paul said there's one that says, I'm of Paul. One group says, I'm of Peter. Another group says, I'm of Apollos. So they say perhaps that one of the members of Paul's groups insulted one of the members of Apollos' groups. Or one of Apollos' groups insulted Paul's groups. They didn't like to be insulted. They, Diochrysism reports that the Roman world at that time in the late first century was filled with lawyers, innumerable lawyers. And most lawsuits were politically motivated between members of the rich or the elite class, but it gave these lawyers, these orators, time to show off their rhetorical talents. So these are the same people that make up the church, right? So they still had that mindset, if you insult me, I'm going to sue you. Little things. Paul's solution, though, to this problem is, remember, shame them. Shame them. Shame on them for suing their brothers. Shame was an important factor in first century Rome also. Paul, twice in this letter in Corinthians, shames the church over their behavior. Here, because of lawsuits in chapter 11, which we'll eventually get to, over drunkenness. The lawsuits were motivated by perceived loss. Perceived loss of honor. So for him to shame them, hopefully, got their attention. A key verse, verse 7. Now therefore, 
It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? You know, if you were working together on a project at your place of work, you and a co-worker working on it, and if you did 90% of the work and they did 10, but the day came that you completed the project and that lazy co-worker that only did 10% jumped right up there and took the credit for it, are you going to take it lightly or are you going to be offended? Most of us are going to be offended, right? Why would you not rather be cheated? If you go to the store and you get shortchanged, you give them a 20 and the thing was only $2 and they only give you $10 back, are you going to be shortchanged? Of course not. You don't want to be cheated. You worked hard for that money, right? But here's the way believers should respond to wrongs done to them. Matthew 5, 38-42 You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So let's bring that to, to, modern, to modern day. Someone steals your shirt. Give them your coat also. I know, tunics. What's a tunic, right? What's a cloak? It's, a, it's apparel. It's clothing. But if someone's, you know, many people will give you the shirt off their back. But if someone steals your shirt, Jesus said, take your coat off and let them have that also. I remember a story that I think Mike shared. There were some kids, ornery kids, let's call them, and this was up around the Grantsville area. And there was, Amish up there had a farm and he had pumpkins. And there was pumpkins over in this one section of the farm and there was more pumpkins on the other. Well, this farmer caught some, these kids over there busting these pumpkins. So he goes over there to them and, you know, he didn't go rushing over there with a gun and run them off. He says, boys, boys, he says, come here, he says, these are the bad pumpkins. Come over here, let me show you the good ones. Have, some, have fun with these. That's the way he responded. Is that not the way we probably should respond? With love, with compassion, right? The eye for an eye has come from Leviticus, chapter 24, 19 through 22. It says, If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country. For I am the Lord your God. Now these laws were not given as a means of revenge. These laws were given for the judges to use as a guide. But not for everyone to use as revenge. But that's what Israel had done with it. They were using this as a means of revenge. When Jesus says not to resist an evil person, make sure we don't take that out of context. A slap on the cheek or a stolen coat or cheated out of something or taking credit is different than doing harm to one's family member. I'll stand here and say if someone was harming one of my grandchildren, I'm not going to sit by. I am going to resist that person. They better run, right? But there's, It's teaching us not to retaliate, though, for wrongs that are done to us. 
He's not talking about harsh cry or murder or someone abusing a child. A man named Richard Weaver, he was a Christian worker, and he earned a living working in the mines. But he had a higher priority of trying to bring his associates, his co-workers, in contact with Jesus Christ, trying to save their souls by sharing the word with him through his work every day. He would share the word. Most of the men were indifferent to his preaching and teaching, but one man became offended by his witness. And finally he explained, exclaimed, he says, I am sick of your constant preaching. I have a good mind to smack you in the face. Richard said, go ahead. At that, he did. He struck him on the face. And he turned him the other cheek. So he struck him again. He did not retaliate. Did not retaliate. But as the man walked away, Mr. Weaver called to him, I forgive you. And I still pray that the Lord will save you. The next morning, the assailant was waiting for him when he came to work. He said, oh, Richard, he said with a voice filled with emotion, do you really forgive me for what I did yesterday? Certainly, Richard said. Weaver extended his hand to the man, and he told him the message of salvation again. And the man gave his heart to Jesus Christ. What would he have done if he would have struck back? Jesus said, love your enemies. It's like heaping coals of fire upon their heads, right? May we respond like that. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43-48, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, these are Jesus' words, Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Friends, that's a hard command to pray for those who spitefully you. I mean, that's hard to take. To do things out of spite. I might not even be there myself yet. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and send rains on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So let me say, do not even the heathens do the same? They even love those that love them, love their family. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do that? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. My friends, who is our example? Jesus Christ. What did they do to Him? Did they not strike him on the cheek? Did he retaliate? No, he forgave them. Did they not punch him in the face? I say they slapped him and they punched him. They tortured him with the whips. Placed a crown upon his head. Pierced his side. They ridiculed him so many times. But what did he do? As he hung there, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friends, He is our example. It's not what others do, but Jesus Christ is our example of how we should respond to evil done to us. 
It is a hard thing. It's not the way that we are wired, but it's the way we can be wired when He rules and reigns in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Dare you be cheated? I hope that we can. I hope that we have the experience to be cheated and respond in love so they may come back the next day. Tell me about your Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen.